Welcome everybody to Sober, Stories of Badgers Empowering Recovery. This is a podcast with Wisconsin Voices for Recovery, and my name is Aaron Claiborne, Outreach Specialist for the Engagement to Recovery Program with Wisconsin Voices for Recovery. Um, I've been supportive of and advocating for recovery in communities in Wisconsin as a recovery coach trainer, a certified Deloxone trainer, and a certified peer specialist. Wisconsin Voices for Recovery is a peer-run movement that helps unite people in recovery, their families, professionals, and allies. As a diverse coalition of recovery advocates, we serve as a statewide network to link services and support to those in need. Now, joining me today is Tamika Glenn. Tamika is the 53206 Drug Free Community Coordinator at Community Advocates located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Tamika is also the founder of her new organization, Globe Milwaukee Inc. It's also located in Milwaukee. Uh, she works with young men 16 to 25 years old to let them know they have worth, and she wants them to believe in their dreams. Tamika has done and continues to do so much more in the community. So, Tamika, welcome, and please tell our listeners a little bit more about you. Thanks for having me, first of all. Um, like you said, my name is Tamika Glenn. I am the DFC um, Drug-Free Communities Coordinator for the 53206 zip code in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which was deemed one of the worst zip codes in the United States. I also have my own nonprofit, Glow Up Milwaukee, Inc., um, which... We focus on life skills, prevention work, and recovery, um, things for youth and young men and women, um, 16 to 25, and I actually just raised it up to 29 years of age. We try to provide them resources and um, jobs, interviewing skills, whatever we can help them to prepare them to be out in the world and make a living for themselves. And on top of that, I also work with uh, Milwaukee Public Schools Recreation Division in doing um, midnight leagues for youth and young men 18 to 25 years of age. Um, It's just to keep them out of the streets, doing something that they love to do, um, help them work on their skills, and help them pretty much um, stay together and form brotherhoods amongst each other. Beautiful, beautiful. That's uh, fantastic work you're doing in the community. Um, can you uh, tell me a little bit uh, more about your current role? Well, my current role with the DFC, the Drug Free Communities, um, what I basically do is link um, community members, organizations, um, any any coalitions with resources and trainings to help do prevention work within 53206 and the fields of opioids, marijuana, tobacco, and alcohol. Um, it's definitely funded by the state and the um, government, but we work together to try to get the word out um, about prevention, and which entails basically go along with life skills. You know, you gotta have. You can't have one without the other one. So we kind of focus on both, and we also focus on mental health and um, suicide prevention. That's beautiful. Great work you're doing. So I'd like to ask you a few questions, uh, starting with your personal experience with drugs and alcohol. 
So I'd like to ask, how were you introduced to drugs and alcohol? Well, basically in the world that I was living as a young lady, um, growing up in the 53206 zip code and the one, two, um, it was the norm, you know, you, your parents and your siblings and cousins and different things like that. Everybody was pretty much using, and it makes you kind of wonder a little bit. You want to see what the feeling is like. And I always tell anybody, you know, that works in this type of work basically have dealt with some type of issues with whether it's drugs, alcohol, or opioids. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that peer pressure in the environment that we, we live in. So now mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you, uh, so what was appealing, uh, what was appealing to you about using drugs and alcohol at the time? Well, for me, it was mainly the uh, marijuana and the alcohol that kind of suppressed me because for the simple fact of it was glorified. You know, that was the thing to do. That's what you see at the parties and, you know, that's what you've seen at the picnics. That's what you've seen at the family gatherings, you know, in African-American communities. So, you know, not being engaged or being involved in that, but you're always around it kind of get tempting to you, you know? So for me, just being in the environment alone was so tempting and inviting. And, you know, I always heard that the weed didn't have a three side effects, happy, hungry, and sleepy. So to a kid, you feel like it's not going to do anything to me. It's just going to make me happy. It's going to make me sleep or it's going to, you know, give me an appetite or whatever the case may be. So it was very appealing. To yeah, me as a young I, girl. Yeah, I get that. Okay, so after you had, you know, some experience with drugs and alcohol, what led you to continue using? Well, you know, um, for me, I can't speak for anyone else, but in my um, dealing with it, what kept me going is it was um, suppressing feelings. It was suppressing pain. It was suppressing um, waking up every day and looking at the roaches or, you know, different things of yeah. that nature. Yeah, I get that. Okay, so I'd like to ask you, um, how long were you addicted to drugs or alcohol, or how long did you continue the use of drugs and alcohol? My heavy addiction really, with alcohol became as in my teenage years, believe it or not, you know, I was already um, as a preteen experiment, but really full blown alcoholism, I would say around 13 years of age, you know. And like I said, it was kind of helping me suppress a lot of the feelings from the rapes and abuse and different things that I had been going through, you know, as a young girl. And on top of it, I felt like I just had the super strength, you know, when I was using. Or was when I was buzzing off the alcohol and things like that. And I had anger issues growing up. I've been kicked out of Milwaukee public schools twice, you know, just from fighting alone. But a lot of things that they didn't know was I was coming to school already drunk, you know. And, you know, youth, we was we was sneaking into the building, you know. So for me, it just gave me that superpower and that super strength, and and it gave me that uh, that courage, you know, to do the bad things that you were doing out here. Yeah, I, t- I can relate. I can definitely relate. Um, 
So I'm, I'm going to jump to another topic, and uh, that's about experiencing stigma. So I'd like to ask you, before you began your recovery journey, what type of stigma did you experience, you know, personally, and how did it impact you? Well, personally, you know, um, what impacted me the most, I have to say this, what impacted me was watching my mom as I was growing up, um, always under the influence, always uh, using cocaine and uh, things like that. And it really hurt me to just sit up and watch her go through that grief and pain the way that she was. And I just thought to myself, you know, I got to get out of this mess. And I knew it was going to be a journey. But it's just watching the people around me that I love so much um, hurt themselves. You know, not just other people, but hurt themselves. And I just knew that that was something I didn't want to keep growing up into. Yeah, I totally understand that. Um, that that can be extremely impactful. Uh you know, leading you in either direction, that stigma of, you know, the how uh, society views a person who does have substance use disorder. Yeah. Okay, so I'd like to ask you, um, how did the stigma associated with substance use disorder deter or prevent you from seeking recovery? Well, like I said, it was a journey, and I knew it was going to be a journey. But before that journey even began... You know, just it impacted me just because I I was right there in the midst of it. And regardless of which way you looked or turned, it was right in your face. You didn't have to pay for it sometimes. Your friends may come through with it or the people that live next door to you may come back with it and say, hey, try this. I got some new things going on, you know, so. That's really what led me to keep keep using and abusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well-known fact in those uh, communities that are um, of heavy drug use, of very, you know, heavy uh, drug selling. So You know, Aaron, this is like a simple fact. You can go on every street corner and you can find a liquor store. Same thing with weed, marijuana, and opioids. You go... One way, you got some right there. You go the next way, you got some right there. But you got to be strong enough to go bypass it. Yeah, it's very unavoidable. Very unavoidable in some communities. Um, Okay, so my next question is, uh, what type of stigma do you experience currently, both personally and professionally, and how does it impact you? Um, I mean, there's many different forms of stigma uh, against people who are in recovery, people who have substance, current uh, active substance use discovery, I'm I'm sorry, active substance use disorder, and, uh, you know, other stigmas that are attached to substance use disorder and race. Like, what do you experience, uh, if anything, both personally and professionally, and how does it impact you? Well, you know, I have, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I have um, community forums a lot with youth, um, community mem- members, older adults, and organizations. And just talking to them, it's, 
it's just something that's uh, is unavoidable, like we just said. Regardless which way you look at it, each one of these different uh, places are dealing with this. Um, like we have recently in 53206 worried about so many liquor stores and vape shops that are popping up in 53206. I mean, sometimes we find them side by side from each other. Yeah, yeah. And just a lot of the ed- education that's needed because a lot of people don't know how to go about, you know, um, talking to different lawmakers or other people or different things like that about them not even wanting this in their neighborhood. So I try to um, use the people's voice as much as I can. And whether it's a stigma or whatever the fact may be, but just using the people's voice and showing them different outlets and different things like that and have available resources and, you know, kind of connect them with other organizations or other recovery um, resources kind of be, kind of helps a lot. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, Power in numbers, strength in numbers. Yeah, definitely. All right. I'm going to ask you some questions about the community impact of alcohol and other drugs. So living in a community or environment where drugs and alcohol were readily available, what was peer pressure like for you to get involved with drugs and alcohol? And I know you kind of spoke on that a little bit earlier in this podcast, but can you elaborate a little bit more on that? I definitely can. Um, Well, peer pressure is everywhere you look. I mean, you can look on TV, you can listen to certain music, um, you can get triggered, you know, just by a person coming down the street playing their music loudly. They may say something that trigger you. Um, and a lot of people kind of go back to that happy space because what do drugs do? It takes pain away, you know, for that moment. And just dealing with that in a community kind of makes me want, I would say, be more involved in helping Mm -hmm. with the stigmas, helping with um, the resources and the language. You know, people have to think about the verbiage that we use. That impacts a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, dealing with the, in in the community, you have to really, you know, stay current. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Peer pressure is always around you. No matter where you look at your friends, your neighbor, your family, or your friends you're always going to be somewhere around peer pressure. Yeah. Even more so nowadays with all the social media, the YouTube, uh, the, the TikToks, and all that, there's even more of a media presence with, you know, pressure, peer pressure to do, you know, drugs. Yeah. Cause when you, you, you listen to some of the music, I'm not blaming everyone. So let's just say that we're not going to say we're blaming everyone, but when you're, listening to certain lyrics in rap music when they're telling you, yeah, we haven't had these lines or these lean and, you know, we haven't popped these, we rolling off the zannies and all that stuff, you know, all of that is very impactful and influential to a lot of these youth out here. And I think a lot of artists and people like that don't think about that when they're making music. The only thing they're thinking about is themselves and the money. Yeah, definitely. Couldn't say it better myself. 
All right. So I would like to ask you also, how how can you describe what the availability of illicit street drugs looks like in your community? And I know you did touch on that uh, a little bit, but can you just give me a, a broader, more vivid um, description of how, how the uh, availability of those illicit street drugs looks like in your community or any community in the surrounding areas? Well, you know, I mean, it's always available. You go outside, go to the gas station, you can get what you want. You know, you go outside, you talk to a neighbor and say, hey, do you know where I can find X, Y, and Z? They're going to find X, Y, and Z, especially if they're going to get a cut of the money. You know, it's just one thing that's always going to be readily available for anyone that needs it. I mean, it's always going to be accessible. It's always going to be somewhere and for you to use it or you know, you have to think about everything that's associated with it. Yeah. The drugs, the money, the the sex, the different things of that nature. So it's always going to be available. Um, you know, it's always uh, fair exchange, no robberies. That's what they call right. it. You yeah, know, you're going to yeah. always have something available for what you need. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. And you know what, Aaron, to be honest with you, it's not even just the 53206. It's readily available in our community in general. I've seen it so available on the south side more than the north side sometimes, you know? It just yeah. don't it don't matter what yeah. side of town that it is, it's just here. Yeah, it, it does not have drugs and alcohol, illicit street drugs, they have no um, designated uh demographic area, no geographic area that is restricted from. Uh, yeah, yeah, can, it's not restricted yeah. from anywhere. You literally can find, you know, Delta Eights, Delta Ten. I am jumped up to Delta Tens and different things of that nature. But uh, and what you do to get that? Go to a vape shop or the gas or the gas station. Everybody know that. Yeah, yeah, it's everywhere, everywhere. Everybody know that. And then if you like, they the young kids. I, I've actually heard young folks say, "Well, you know what? All the states around us, the weed is legal, so we ain't got to do nothing. We just go to one of them." Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Very true. Okay. So, um, with that, um, you know, availability of illicit street drugs in the community, uh, in what way, how does that impact your substance use and recovery? So I, I, you know, I can think back when I was younger, you know, probably wasn't as much availability as far as different drugs, but the availability of what was there, it had, you know, an impact on my substance use and recovery. What did that look like for you? Well, for me, it was a little different because I was one of them, you know, I mean, not just using, like I said, my main focus was marijuana and, 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 and alcohol but we had the cocaine we had the powder we had everything that we need right there and when you're part of the training that's going on you know you can't get around or uh get away from what's being in your face on a daily basis you know because a lot of people that's the way of survival you know some people may not have any uh let's say drugs alcohol or whatever but you know what? I can go right here and get anything I need. It's, it's 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 just that impactful. And for me and myself, I can get marijuana just talking to my friend next door. Hey girl, I need a blunt. Can you bring me a blunt? Oh, I got you, sis. Here I come. You know. 
So, of course, it's going to be impactful. But when I decided that this is no longer for me and I want no parts of that, I lost all them friends. People don't want to be around you. They don't want to see you in recovery. They don't want to see you doing good because that means you're doing something better than what they was doing. They want to, you know, keep you on the same level with them. Yeah, definitely. That's kind of like that reverse stigma, you know. (laughs) Yeah, because I never forget um, when I decided to quit smoking marijuana, I I lost every single friend that Mm -hmm. I thought was my friend. And I'm talking about 20-year friendships. Wow. I'm talking about 20-year friendships. And I had it bad to the point where I would walk around with just a purse full of weed, you know? But when that purse didn't open up no more, all uh, them people get away from me. They disappear. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh. So I'm going to move on to the next question. Um, so what do you think perpetuates the cycle uh, of distribution or sale of illicit street drugs in your community. Why, why does this keep happening? Why do people continue to sell drugs in the community? Survival. Survival. That one word will definitely sums it up. Survival. You have to think about majority of the kids, especially in the 53206. You think about majority of the kids in the 53206. Let's break it down a little bit. Majority of the kids in the 53206 have ADHD. That's number one. And majority of the kids in 53206 have um, suffered from lead poison. What is lead poison if it sits in your body for so long? What it leads to? Brain damage. Mm-hmm. Emotional disturbance. Different things of that nature. Uh, incarceration. But, you know, those drugs help keep the rent paid, keep food on the table, keep some money in your pocket, go get you a pair of gym shoes. You know, it's a survival thing. Wow, that's that's true. And many of our listeners may not be able to grasp that concept. Uh, but it, it's a. Well, that's it's all you know, Aaron. That's yeah. all you know. Yeah. You know, you yeah. have some people that don't have but a second grade education. They want to work, but when they go to fill out the application, you can't even read what's on the application, what you think going to happen. Because everybody is not going to live up under the bridge. Right. Yeah. Ain't no way to live. So, yeah, people turn to different methods of, of getting money without having an education. I totally, I totally know that, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just like even a prostitute. A prostitute will do the same thing because you're in the mind frame of survival. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Great answer. Great answer. Um, so I'm going to ask you this question and it, you kind of answered, answered it, uh, from the last question, but I'm going to ask you anyway, see if, uh, we can get a little more information about it. So what do you think perpetuates the cycle of drug addiction in your community or the surrounding communities of color? Open, honest, open and honest answer is generations. Mm-hmm. Because we've been watching this ever since prohibition. You know, yeah. maybe yeah. then they were dealing with alcohol and it grew as the years come by. But you got to think about where 
a lot of these things start from, you know, like even with the farmers growing the poppy seeds, you know, what, what happened with that? You know, parents out there using, uh, growing and doing everything. So it's going to eventually get to the kids. The kids going to become the farmers, the users and stuff like that. So within our community, it's the same way. If I see my mama doing it, I see my brother doing it, they are right. I'm going to do it. Yeah, no doubt. For me, it's a generational thing. When you yeah. grow up in that environment, you're going to be in that environment. You're going to be a product of that environment. They always say the apple never falls too far from the tree. Mm-hmm. And that's very true. Because if you look at yourself, even in yourself, you have certain traits of your parents. Yeah. Whether it's good or bad, but you're going to have some kind of traits of the people that surround you. So, of course, we're going to have traits of our environment. Yeah, definitely. definitely. You know, and then like with us, you know, in African-American community, we love playing spades. I see a lot of different households playing spades, but when you're playing in spades, what you going to do? Smoke some weed and get some drink. That's how it goes. That's how it goes. The barbecues, the picnics, it's always something that's prevalent. prevalent. Yeah. And And I mean, yeah. I've seen a person go to a church picnic and they'll dip off and go do their thing. You know, it's just the way that it goes. I know maybe some people can break it because I was one that felt like I was going to break it because I'm sitting up looking at everybody uh, with hot breath and, you know, arguing amongst each other and fighting and those different things. And I begin thinking to myself, I can't live like this. I have to break the cycle. Somebody has to break the cycle. I broke that cycle within my family and it impacted my kids because now they're not doing um, X, Y, and Z what I see my aunties and uncles and cousins and everyone doing. So it's a generational thing that people have to think about that is a part of this uh, uh, situation. It is what it is. Yes, definitely. So... And I think you kind of answered this. You kind of summed this question up, too, that I'm about to ask you. So why do you think it continues to have to be an issue in communities of color specifically? Well, I'm going to start off by saying, and I'm only speaking from 53212, 53206, 53210, you know, this, this, the zip codes that's heavily impacted. It's not enough recovery. It's not enough resources. We're starting to see more resources become available within these communities. Mm-hmm. Popping up. But you got to think, the lasting effect. This has already happened. So now you got people running around here trying to find different resources and places and different things of that nature to go to to get help. It's not right there in front of their face. And the ones that are here are so far out that you can't get to them. Mm-hmm. You got things like uh, behavioral health systems and different things of that nature, but they so far out. A lot of people ain't even got bus fare. Yeah, let alone insurance. Exactly. And then the, the heart and the desire may be there, but when you don't have the other tools to uh, cross the finish line, what you going to do? You get frustrated. Using, frustration, uh, stay in the zone where you live. I know 
I'm starting to see little houses here and there pop up, but where are the big ones? Where are the real recovery hospitals? Suburbs. Mm-hmm. You don't see any 5 through 206. You tell me one recovery center, big time, with good doctors, take uh, uh, no insurance or anything like that in 5 through 206. There is none. You see several living housing. You can see uh, resources to tell you to go out there. Mm-hmm. But is it a bus ticket to go with those resources? No. Very true. Very true. Something that really needs to be addressed. And uh, I'm glad that it's growing, but to the extent, to the degree of what's really needed for some st- for some substantial, uh, you know, help is uh, almost, almost non-existent. It's non-existent. They try to make it seem like it's there and, you know, but the reality when you actually beat these streets, when you are... Uh, getting woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning because X, Y, and Z didn't make it home and their parents worried about them. Where are those places when I need them? Yeah. I walked out of a, a community center that I worked at and seen six kids laid out on a picnic table. I had to call the paramedics and everything. They took them out to the suburbs, to the uh, hospital and things of that nature. But when they came back, they told me, they said, Miss Green, I don't even know how long I had been out there. Mm. They didn't even know how long they had been out there because somebody gave them a lace. They smoked some weed. Somebody gave them a lace blunt with fentanyl and they passed oh. out. Wow. And they could have been laying there for hours because I had been in that building myself for eight hours. Wow. So who knows how long they had been sleeping there up under that shelter. And somebody came back to tell me, Miss Glenn, and some kids outside passed out. I didn't know if they were dead or alive. I had to go out there and check them. But, like I said, to give them a circle back, there wasn't no available resources. Man, that's, that's tough to hear, man. Kids. Yeah, the oldest one was uh, 17 years old. The youngest one that was out there was 12. Mm. Yeah, that could have turned out a lot worse than what it did. Exactly. Thank God it didn't. Thank God it didn't. All right, we're going to switch gears a little bit. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about reflecting on challenges uh, to recovery in African, African-American communities, uh, which you so eloquently and um, thoroughly just spoke about. So I'm going to ask you this question. Now, circling back to your personal re, uh, recovery journey, uh, what have you learned that inspires you to continue maintaining your recovery? Work. I, I've gained a ton of work for myself. I mm-hmm. began to love myself. I began to feel like uh, I was an asset to the world. I started feeling like um, I'm not going to become my past. Yeah. And I always said to myself, I wish I had me in my life. So, of course, that led me into staying sober and keeping myself on the straight path. 
and you're doing it. <laughs> you are definitely doing it. You, you know, you're reaching out to others and you, uh, you know, you're helping so many people. So you are, yeah. you are very valued uh, in your community. And, and I can tell it's going to, this is going to be very inspirational to our listeners. I do what I do because I always tell people I do what I do because growing up, I wish I had a person around me like me, mm -hmm. just someone to talk to someone, you know, maybe I wouldn't have ended up in that path if I had someone just there and I have nothing but brothers, but they all stayed incarcerated majority of my life. I didn't have that person. So that's what made me want to do the work that I do. Yeah. And you are that person for others. Yeah. All right. So after finding recovery and reflecting on your previous substance use, what did you learn about yourself or some of the things you learned about yourself after, after finding recovery? That there was so many of me out there. Mm. I learned a lot about that. And I've learned um, the impact of drugs and what it can do to your health. Yeah. You have to think years and years of substance abuse and alcoholism can set off different things in your body that can affect you in the long run. Um, you think about alcohol with so much sugar in it that can definitely onset diabetes. Yeah. You know, um, smoking so many blunts and affect your lungs, you're going to definitely either develop asthma, bronchitis, or COPD. Mm -hmm. It's going to take the, the circulation out of your body. Yeah. And that was yeah. very impactful for me. Yeah. I actually yeah. went through, um, from smoking alone, I went through um, five years of not being able to use my legs because the circulation in my legs pretty much uh, was getting clogged up, basically. Like, I wasn't circulating properly the way that I should. But wow. that comes from all of the smoking that I had went through. When I stopped smoking, that's really why I start uh, becoming an athlete, start working out, start shooting basketball and different things like that. Because slowly but surely, you can rega regain your strength and your, your uh, circulation back if you want it. Yeah. And I wanted it. So definitely, it was my time to do what I need to do. Yeah, yeah. Man, you, you got some deep stuff going on here. It's, you know, it's very informative and very touching. Uh, like I said, I'm sure our listeners are going to gain a lot and have a lot to reflect on. Uh, once, once they listen to this podcast with you, you're, you're an and amazing one. So. Yeah, I definitely hope so. It's good stuff. Um, all right. So I'm asked a couple more questions. This, this one is, uh, what advice would you give a person in the African American community who is battling addiction? And then how about advice for someone in the African American community was seeking recovery. So what advice would you give a person in the African-American community who is battling addiction? And what advice would you give to an African-American uh, in those communities who are seeking recovery? Okay. 
Can I start off with the last question? Definitely. Um, definitely a person that's seeking recovery. And my line of work in prevention, one of the main things I do is a lot of networking. I network from sunup to sundown, even after my work hours, just being randomly in the mall, meeting people or having basic conversations. You never know uh, what a person passed or what their occupation is. So I do a lot of networking with different people and try to make sure that I get any available resources that I can actually get. Sober living lit, uh, homes, uh, recovery centers, uh, community organizations, wherever I can seek help at the closest to our community and try to have those resources for the people that need them. And I would say as far as a person who is, what was number one? Actually battling. Abuse, battling. Uh, yeah. First thing first, let's check our mental health. Mm-hmm. First thing first, because number one, in order to start using drugs, it is not just peer pressure or you thinking it's fancy. A lot of us are really having mental health issues, whether it's self-esteem issues, money issues, parent issues, whatever the case may be. But it's definitely something going on deep yeah. within us that someone needs to speak out on. And especially in the African-American community, we hold everything in. Yeah. <laughs> and you always heard the expression, what, what happened behind closed doors stays behind closed doors. Yeah. Well, believe me, it's definitely something going on that is causing the usage. A lot of people got to understand, we can definitely get people in recovery. We can definitely help them with their sobriety. But what are we doing to help them with their mental health issues? Mm-hmm. that's affecting the trauma within them that's setting up the PTSD and different things of that nature Yeah, you cannot have one without the other that's right. so that's one of our main issues is really what are we doing to affect their mental health what are we doing to help with that aspect in order to help them to get to recovery we have to tackle that at the same time yeah that's right that's right that's where that self-medicating comes in. At. You know, we don't want to seem weak or, you know, our pride gets in the way. You know, anytime, you know, most individuals, especially in the African-American community where we have to show our strength, we don't want to show weakness. You know, we think of it as being weak when we put, you know, stick our hand out for some help. You know, so Yes, that, that, a lot of people cry out. It's just got to be on a person to want to hear they cry. You know, I'm a selfless person, so I don't really think about self so much. I try to listen. I tell anyone, if you're going through issues, you're going through problems or anything like that, I'm here to listen. I don't have to respond to what you're telling me. Sometimes you just need a cry or someone just to listen to what's affecting you. You know, you get some people that lose a parent, you know. They might not is might be kind of rough for them. Everybody's not on the same level to be able to deal with certain pains. Yeah. Because the way I love my mother might be different from the way you love your mother. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm not not give or take. Not saying that nothing is different. It's just how we deal with it. Right. Real talk. Real talk. 
All right, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, you know, all these very insightful views uh, that you share with our audience today. So I'm going to ask you, is there anything else you'd like to say that we haven't discussed today? You know what? I just would love to tell anybody that is nothing wrong with helping somebody do something better than what they was doing yesterday. That's right. No doubt. No doubt. Help uplift, help uplift one another, right? That's correct. All right. Beautiful stuff. So thank you, Tamika, for being here for this edition of Sober. Uh, stories of Badgers and Power and Recovery. You uh, had some very <clears throat> thought-provoking, deep, inspirational conversation, and I appreciate you taking the time out to do this with me today. Um, no problem. Thanks for having me. It was definitely a pleasure. So, Tamika, you have a great rest of your day, and uh, enjoy the weather. Take care. All right. Bye.